because you have this hostility directed towards a group that is seen as foreign, that is not seen as American, the major way of directing that hostility is through immigration policy. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement Impact at the USSC. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. Today on The Briefing Room, we're continuing our USSC Book Talk series and bringing back David Smith to the podcast. He's an associate professor in American politics and foreign policy, jointly with the United States Study Centre and the University of Sydney. He's regularly on ABC Radio Drive and publishing in The Conversation. And while we often talk about the latest in U.S. politics today, we are going to look at the U.S. through a more historical lens. In 2015, he published Religious Persecution and Political Order in the United States with Cambridge University Press. Why does a country that sees religious freedom as central to its founding have such a painful history with religious persecution? How does the U.S. experience compare with what we've seen in Australia? And where is the United States today on the spectrum of religious persecution and protection? We're going to talk about all these things, but stay tuned um, because at the end we're going to have David share his By the Numbers fact about his book. So thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I guess just to frame the book a little bit, and obviously a lot has changed in America since Mm. you wrote the book, um, but it does look very much at American history, which is still very relevant to talk about. Uh, So in the book, you talk about the irony of America being established for religious freedom but having a history of such blatant religious persecution, mm. and you go on to share the stories of the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as the Catholic, Jewish, and Islamic experiences in America. Mm. And some of this is taught in some schools in America. Um, I didn't learn that much about the Mormon experience when I was growing up, but when I did my student teaching or prac, um, we did a whole unit on the Mormon uh, persecution, which was very interesting part of American history, Uh, but it's not in all schools by any means. And I imagine it's not making it into the, you know, Australian curriculum very much. So could you please paint a brief picture for us um, of what this religious persecution looked like and especially for the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, so religious freedom in the United States, it's not mythological. The United States genuinely does protect religious freedom better than most countries and has done historically. What I was really interested in was why it was that a country for whom religious freedom was so important nonetheless really did have these religious minorities targeted who were not only fairly small and unthreatening in most cases, but they were actually homegrown religious sects. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Nation of Islam all originated in the United States. So it wasn't just um, prejudiced against foreigners, although it it was often framed in those terms. Um, It it was a real puzzle to me um, why it was that this norm of religious freedom would be allowed to lapse for these particular groups. 
And so that was what motivated the writing of the book. And it is simple enough for people who believe very deeply in religious freedom to violate the religious freedom of other people if they don't believe that that religion is a genuine religion, if they don't think it's a genuine religious group. And I think that part of the reason why these homegrown American groups got persecuted was because people saw that they came from the United States, whereas the major world religions all came from somewhere else. And the fact that people had had such close contact with these groups made them doubt their authenticity as religious groups. Um, Certainly these charismatic prophetic figures like Joseph Smith, they're always very polarising. Joseph Smith attracted a lot of followers as the founder of Mormonism, but he also attracted a lot of people who saw him as an outright fraud, as a con artist, as someone who had no claim um, to be running a religion. So one of the common themes is that when, uh, you know, it, it, it's easy to persecute someone if you don't actually think that they're a legitimate religion. And another theme that came through, though, was that even though objectively I wouldn't see any of these groups as particularly threatening, there definitely were people who saw these groups as threatening and who really got into conflict with these groups. And my argument in the book is that from the perspective of state actors, whether they were federal government officials, people in Congress uh, or state governors or people at the very local level like sheriffs, when they saw this kind of conflict going on, the calculation that they made was who is the bigger threat here? Is it this religious group or is it the people who are persecuting this religious group? And when you talk about that that threat, can you help us understand, like, because, you know, mm. we, even in recent decades, we hear politicians, you know, talk about, mm. you know, the re- religious freedoms being persecuted. And even Donald Trump has talked about that. Or if you have things mm. like the legalization of gay marriage in yeah. America, that has led to conversations around that. Can you help us understand, I guess, the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, mm. what that persecution looked like in context or contrast to what you might hear about more recently? Yeah, there were usually a couple of different dimensions to the threat. There was everyday conflict between these religious groups and their neighbours. So the Mormons uh, in particular, when they, this is years before they went to Utah, they gathered in Missouri and they became so numerous in Missouri that they were threatening to become the electoral majority in some counties and a lot of their neighbours thought if these Mormons, if these strange neighbours all stick together, become an electoral majority, they're going to um, take political control and take away our rights. Um, But there was also always a symbolic threat as well. And for Mormons, the reason why there was so much national outrage about them was that they were practising polygamy or as they called it plural marriage and they started practicing that when they were in Illinois when they ran an entire city called uh, Nauvoo Uh, but they started practicing it openly when they went to Utah after the uh, after the killing of their founder Joseph Smith and polygamy was seen as this moral outrage Although historians have emphasised that part of the reason why polygamy was talked about so much was because it was kind of 
entertaining. Uh, it was sometimes referred to as the pornography of the Puritans, all of these lurid stories about these supposed polygamous harems that were happening out in the Utah desert, uh, which actually had very little to do with the, the practice of Mormon polygamy. In reality, it was because men were dying on the frontier all the time. Basically, their wives would then marry their brothers. Uh, it was actually a means of um, preserving the community and supporting widows, but the way that it was depicted usually drew on stereotypes drawn from people's understanding of the Middle East, these Turkish uh, seraglios and and things like that. Um, but there were certainly people who did see it as a very serious threat to the morality of the United States. And one group that did was the Republican Party. In 1856, one of the first manifestos of the Republican Party, which had only been founded a couple of years previously, said that it was dedicated to eliminating the twin relics of barbarism in the West, slavery and polygamy. So for people with very strong evangelical uh, Christian commitments, which a lot of Republicans did, they brought that same fervour that they brought to the anti-slavery cause to the anti-polygamy cause. And it's also worth noting that early feminists saw polygamy as a tool of control, patriarchal control over women, or what we would now call patriarchal control over women. So you sort of had this alliance of feminists and evangelical Christians who believed that polygamy was essentially like a form of, uh, of slavery, which they didn't want to tolerate in the same way that they didn't tolerate uh, slavery during the Civil War. Jehovah's Witnesses were a bit different they were a much um, uh, more dispersed group. So Mormons, I think part of the threat was the sense they're almost founding their own country out in Utah. Jehovah's Witnesses, there were about 44,000 of them by World War II. They were spread out across the country and they were known for very aggressive proselytism. So uh, they would... Um, you know, you might be familiar now with Jehovah's Witnesses missionaries going from door to door. That's part of their religious obligation. Yep, always dressed very neatly. Yes, absolutely. Back in those days, they would sometimes travel in much larger groups and so you would get a lot of them descending on one town at once and they were very aggressive towards other religions, like verbally aggressive. Um, they denounced other religions as tools of Satan. They basically saw everything other than themselves as a tool of Satan, including the United States government. So, not uh, you, no, this was this was not something that was um, designed to make friends with other religious groups. This was something that was designed to warn people that they had gone dramatically wrong and that they needed to uh, come around to the light. So understandably, a lot of people were quite annoyed with Jehovah's Witnesses when they would descend on their towns. But the symbolic issue for Jehovah's Witnesses was that they wouldn't salute the American flag. And um, this was because they saw the flag salute as a form of idolatry. They saw that as putting the state above God. And they were prepared to comply with the laws of America, but um, uh, they, you know, they, they couldn't accept this. And uh, Jehovah's Witness schoolchildren started getting expelled en masse from elementary schools. And what time period was that happening? This on? was during the 1930s uh, for not saluting the American flag. And um, when violence against Jehovah's Witnesses started, a lot of that was to do with the 
increasing fear about what was happening in Europe. And there were all of these rumours that Jehovah's Witnesses were a fifth column for the Nazis because they wouldn't salute the American flag. Jehovah's Witnesses, however, pointed out that the American flag salute at that time actually looked a lot like the Nazi salute. And Jehovah's Witnesses were being persecuted by Nazis in uh, in Germany. That was They were one of the first groups actually persecuted um, by the Nazis. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was all of this... Uh, all of this conflict around um, around Jehovah's Witnesses, where the the proximate cause of it was that they wouldn't salute the American flag. Um, oh, sorry, that was more the symbolic cause. The proximate cause was people often didn't like them coming to their towns. Hmm. And and so, I mean, you're t- what you're describing is some pretty you know blatant and out mm. in the open you know persecution where yes. you know it was very you know no one's trying to hide it. That's mm. just what's going on. Are there any historic examples in Australia that are comparable or is this American experience completely unique and different? It's pretty different from the Australian experience. Um, I would argue the the central religious persecution in Australia was the attempted destruction of Indigenous life uh, because all aspects of Indigenous law and culture are related in some way to um, indigenous religious understanding. So I, I would argue that um, all of that was religious persecution, but um, nothing that really looked so much like this. When you think of someone like Pauline Hanson suggesting, as she constantly has, that Australia needs to have a royal commission into Islam, and she says we need a royal commission to determine is Islam actually a religion or is it a political movement? Something like that, that's certainly moving towards the kinds of justifications that we saw for religious persecution in America. Um, uh, the idea, this, this is not really a religious group. Uh, this, In the case of the Mormons, they thought it was this elaborate scam that had, that had grown into this um, uh, politically dangerous cult. Uh, in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, they... Just, you know, suspected this had something to do with the Second World War and this was some kind of uh, of enemy group. Um, with the Nation of Islam, which is another group that I look at, the FBI, who were surveilling them, um, really emphasised that this group had nothing to do with mainstream Islam. And it's true, they came from very, very different traditions. It actually, The Nation of Islam actually originally grew out of African-American Christianity and they had a a belief system is very, very far from orthodox Islam, even though they used some of the same terms. And the FBI actually produced this whole pamphlet saying, this is what orthodox Islam looks like, this is what the nation of Islam looks like. And they then actually denied outright that they were a religion. They said they're not really a religion, they're a militant black political movement. So once you begin to say that a certain group is not a religion, that it's a disguised political movement... Uh, that's when you begin to pave the way for persecution. Now, that hasn't happened in Australia, as Pauline Hanson would like, but it paves the way. Just an example of this from my book. When Jehovah's Witnesses were imprisoned in 1918 for opposing the First World War, for handing out material that was opposed to the First World War, which violated the Sedition Act, So here is Judge H.B. Howe of the U.S. District Court in Brooklyn sentencing seven Jehovah's Witness leaders to 20 years imprisonment. 
He says, in the opinion of the court, the religious propaganda which these defendants have vigorously advocated and spread throughout the nation, as well as among our allies, is a greater danger than a division of the German army. If they had taken guns and swords and joined the German army, the harm they would have done would have been insignificant compared with the results of their propaganda. A person preaching religion usually has influence, and if he is sincere, he is all the more effective. This aggravates rather than mitigates the wrong they have done. So in other words, they're saying, yeah, even if they sincerely believe it, that well, that just makes it worse. Um, when you get this idea that this group is a political movement, um, uh, that, yeah, rather than the, the kind of genuine religion that you recognise, even if they're religiously sincere, um, you just see that as exacerbating the threat. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. And it ties into, you know, your whole central premise around these, the, you know, dynamics of control and stability, Um and really, you know, your book is trying to expose why mm. the state or those with power um, to act in these situations, they choose, they make a choice to either intervene or condone mm. religious persecution when it occurs. So how do you navigate what you describe as the three puzzles mm. um, around the inconsistencies and yeah. either the exclusions or the surprising inclusions regarding religious persecution to ultimately find an explanation or a mm. through line that can connect why we see differences between different groups and Yeah, examples. well, what I found was that the way that state officials responded was largely to do with this issue of who was doing the persecuting. So with Mormons, I mean, that was largely driven by the Republican Party who were in the ascendancy politically uh, after the Civil War. They were, that was the most politically respectable group in the country. With Jehovah's Witnesses, one, my archival research really uncovered that the major group behind it was the American Legion. Uh, so returned servicemen from World War I. They were very, very protective of the flag and the flag salute. Um, whereas many people might have seen that as your, a demonstration of your obligation to the nation, for a lot of veterans they basically saw it as that's the demonstration of your thankfulness to the troops and the sacrifices that were made in the war. And certainly, the, I mean, the average American might not have got that upset about Jehovah's Witness schoolchildren not saluting the American flag, but the American Legion certainly did. They saw that as a direct affront to their own status. And um, uh, th my research indicated that certainly in a lot of the incidents in towns, and these nearly all happened in small towns where everyone knew each other, the incidents that degenerated into mass violence, usually beatings uh, where you would have this mob coming and beating up Jehovah's Witnesses and then usually the Jehovah's Witnesses would get arrested uh, mm. by the sheriff sometimes for their own protection... Um, the American Legion was often involved in that and one of the reasons why it was allowed to happen was because this was a very respectable political group. Um, these were often people of very high status in their towns. Um, if you think of people who were young men when they served in the First World War, uh, by the time that the Second World War came around, these were often really established civic leaders or business leaders. Um, and so, you know, when it came to whose side they would take, usually local officials would take the side of the American Legion. Um, when it came to some other groups, though, such as Catholics and Jews, now they certainly 
did suffer from prejudice. In many cases, they suffered from violence. There was mass anti-Catholic rioting in the 19th century. Um, there was kind of uh, all kinds of anti-Semitism, especially in the early 20th century in the United States. But what happened in those cases was that government officials usually took the side of the minority. And one of the reasons for that, I argue, was first of all, these were both world religions. Whatever else you could say about them, you couldn't claim that they weren't religious, that this was not in the realm of, uh, of religion. But the second thing was, in the 19th century, the major political force behind violence against Catholics and attempts to exclude Catholics from the American polity was a party called the Know-Nothings, this anti-establishment um, party that had arisen out of the collapse of the Whigs that, um, you know, many people have likened this movement to, uh, to, to Trumpism. It was this very kind of hostile view of outsiders and uh, was largely a, a kind of movement of the less well-to-do in cities. Um, now, they became very popular in some places. There was one election in Boston where they won, uh, or in Massachusetts, I think, they won just about every seat that was available. But they were, at the same time, um, they were seen as basically this street gang that had become a political party or this secret society that had become a political party. And established political forces in the US really moved against them. And when you look at the riots that happened uh, targeting Catholics, especially around elections, usually more know-nothings died in those riots than Catholics because when the forces were sent in, uh, like when the mayor of Washington, D.C. basically sent the troops in to suppress a riot, they were targeting the know-nothings, not the Catholics. And that's because they saw the know-nothings as a threat. Um, they were a serious threat to establish politics and that's one of the reasons they didn't last very long as a political force. Anti-Semitism had both respectable and disrespectable faces in the United States in the 20th century. The respectable face of anti-Semitism was the fact that uh, Jews were restricted from entering Ivy League universities. They were restricted from entering all kinds of social settings. It was perfectly uh, respectable to be um, anti-Semitic in these kinds of discriminatory ways. However, the groups that uh, really wanted to enact violence and boycotts against Jews and to drive them um, from America and to drive them from American cities... These were not politically respectable groups. These were basically right-wing anti-capitalists who began to emerge from about the 1890s onwards. These were the losers from the Industrial Revolution. And once again, to established American politics, these people were the threat, not Jews. Um, these were the people who wanted to derail industrialization, the banks, um, capitalism as it was emerging in America altogether. And so they were the real threat. And certainly um, as the 1930s went on, anti-Semitism, even though it was still going on in all kinds of ways, it was increasingly becoming associated with the Nazis and uh, with fascism in Italy. And increasingly organisations like the FBI were putting these groups under surveillance. And um, so even though, you know, as I say in the book, anti-Catholicism and anti-Semitism 
were both very successful prejudices in the United States, but they failed as politics. Political movements that tried to organise around these um, were quashed. And this was one of the things that, even though there was violence, Jews and Catholics were not forced to surrender in the ways that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons were. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons had to seriously change their lives. They had to change the whole way that they operated as religions in order to be able to survive in the face of religious persecution in America. Uh, Catholics and Jews... I mean, a lot of Catholics and Jews, I think, did make moves towards integration um, with what they saw as the as the mainstream in order to escape from prejudice. But they weren't um, nearly destroyed in the same way. They, yeah, they they were, you know, they were allowed to continue as they were. So coming back to this <clears throat> point around where then the where the threat was perceived um, by the religious minority, then. They sided with the, I guess, oppressors or the people doing yes, yeah. the persecution, whereas when the people who were persecuting others were um, perceived as more the yes. threat, like the know-nothings, that's yes. when you know the government or the powers that be um, came in to intervene to protect um, the religious minority. Yes. Uh, and to what extent do you think that's like an active choice versus more passive conflict avoidance? Or was mm. it actual belief or was it more even you know, political calculus. Yeah, in some cases, I mean, I think for your average sheriff who's suddenly confronted with this scene of a mob of the town's most respectable citizens beating up some Jehovah's Witnesses that no one likes, um, uh, there probably almost wasn't really much of a choice involved then. The, mm. the power structure was such they were going to side with the, uh, you know, the, the local grandees. Um, over Jehovah's Witnesses. But in other cases, there were definitely choices and strategies involved. Um, uh, you know, Congress actually passed legislation in the 1880s that really stripped Mormons of a lot of their political rights in the Utah Territory. It stripped them of the right to vote. It stripped them of the right to run for office. It stripped them of the right to serve on juries. Some of the most fundamental political rights that there are. Uh, you know, this almost never happens to uh, specific groups of, uh, uh, you know, specific religious groups in the United States. There are certainly other groups who are deprived of, uh, of their rights to vote, such as African Americans um, in the 1960s, but this doesn't usually happen to um, religious groups. The Nation of Islam, or one of the precursors to the Nation of Islam when they were starting out, actually saw it as if we create a religion for African-Americans, then this will protect us because you can be persecuted for your race in America but not for your religion. But as it turned out, the Nation of Islam were persecuted both for their race and for their, uh, you know, and for their religion in the United States. Yeah, and I guess with some of these different groups, do we see a tipping point where they went from being persecuted to being accepted or seen as more mainstream? Like I'm thinking of, yeah. you know, John F. Kennedy um, mm. being the first uh, Catholic president who yeah. was elected or, um, you know, even right now the United States doesn't have just its first second gentleman mm. uh, but their first Jewish partner of a vice president mm. or with um, Mitt Romney in 2012. Mm. Um, 
who was very heavily supported by um, the evangelical voters, even though he was running against an openly Protestant candidate, Barack Obama. Um, but the support levels for Mitt Romney were similar to what we saw for the evangelical vote for other GOP candidates in 2008 mm. or 2004. So do certain factors need to align to see a group move from being you know, a persecuted Mm. religious minority to an accepted religious minority? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the persecution in these cases ends earlier. Um, so for Mormons, it was when they gave up, when they properly gave up the practice of polygamy. But also, one of the interesting things about that was uh, the Republicans didn't like them partly because they voted Democratic. Um, and one of the things that happened as Mormons gave up polygamy was a lot of them became Republicans as well. <laughs> Even and though the Republicans are the ones who are against yeah, them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that was uh, that was one of the things that, that made them, at least if not completely respectable, not persecuted. Um, throughout the 20th century, Mormons were often greeted with this mixture of sort of suspicion and curiosity by other people. So they were no longer persecuted, but they were seen as very different, as very distinct, partly because so many of them lived in this in one place in Utah. And Gallup did polling for a long time that suggested there was always a substantial portion of Americans who, if there'd been a Mormon presidential candidate, they wouldn't have wanted to vote for them. Um, but Mormons gradually became this very successful group, both economically and Politically, and actually Mitt Romney's father, George Romney, was one of the first really successful Mormon politicians in the US outside of Utah. So he was the governor of Michigan. He was often considered a potential presidential um, candidate but never quite got there. Um, certainly one of the interesting things about Romney's candidacy was because I did a lot of work on public opinion towards Mormons at that time. I wrote questions for the American National Election Study to gauge how people felt about Mormons now that there was this Mormon in the race. And what I found was, yes, the acceptance of uh, Mormons as Christians, right, so the number of people who said, yes, Mormons are Christians like us, really increased on the Republican side of politics when Romney became their leader. On the other hand, though, a lot of liberals who previously wouldn't have had strong opinions about Mormons one way or the other suddenly began to see them as a religious threat, as an authoritarian right-wing Christian group that wanted to take away their uh, their rights. So, uh, yes, that the, <laughs> the Romney experience might have increased acceptance of Mormons on one side of politics but uh, not on the other side of politics. Certainly when people get into these positions of, uh, yeah, Kennedy as the first Catholic president or Biden as the second Catholic president, I think it does normalise it quite a lot. And I think that that is very important, even if they often really have to overcome obstacles to get there. Kennedy famously told a gathering of Protestant ministers in Houston that he wouldn't be taking directives from the Vatican, that he was a very strong Catholic personally, but he would keep that out of his, um, of his presidency. And that actually ushered in this whole era of really the privatisation of religion in America. Kennedy thought that the solution to religious prejudice was to make religion as private as possible. And this was also at the time that the Supreme Court was really beginning to develop this very strict jurisprudence about the separation of church and state. 
Separation of church and state is not in the United States Constitution. It was something that Jefferson had believed in, but it wasn't really until a series of court cases between the 40s and the 60s that strict separation of church and state began to be enforced. And with Kennedy as well wanting to remove religion as much from the public square as possible, this was what actually paved the way for the culture wars that we see now between people who want religion to be as non-public as possible and people who think that it should play a very important role in public life. Well, that segues well into my last couple of questions is because Mm. even though the book focuses on US history, I'm curious about how this dynamic plays out today. I guess where Mm. are we in terms of the pendulum uh, of movement in the U.S. in terms of you know religious you know persecution yeah. or acceptance, where how how would you see that dynamic historically compared to now? Yeah, certainly. What you see is that groups that used to be on the outside move to the inside, and sometimes groups move in the other direction. For most of American history, Muslim migrants were seen as just another part of the migrant tapestry of the United States. Uh, President Eisenhower thought that they would be a valuable part of the kind of broad religious coalition against communism. That began to change from the 1970s onwards with the oil shocks crisis and the Iranian revolution. People began to become very suspicious of anything from the Middle East. And then, of course, with 9-11, almost immediately, basically all Muslims in the United States were placed under suspicion. You may remember at the time there was a lot of fear, uh, justified fear, that there would be violent attacks against Muslims in the United States in retaliation for 9-11. And there certainly were, but um, a lot of those attacks didn't target Muslims. They targeted Sikhs. Uh, They targeted people who, because they wore turbans, people associated them with Osama bin Laden. And the United States government during that period despite the fact that it was, you know, it immediately launched this war against the Taliban in Afghanistan, prepared for war against Iraq, the United States government was actually very serious for a long time about cracking down against anti-Muslim violence in the United States. And you can almost see this in Max Weber's classic definition of the state as the monopoly of violence in the United States. Even as the federal government was putting all of these Muslims under surveillance, was using immigration law to deport all of these Muslims that it saw as suspect, um, was infiltrating Muslim communities with agents provocateurs, at the same time they didn't want other people persecuting Muslims. They were basically asserting a right to a monopoly of persecution. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's sort of where we are at now. Um, Unfortunately, I would say that Islamophobia has gotten worse since, you know, there's about a 10-year period where I think that the government actually tried to really keep a lid on it, but I'd say that mass Islamophobia uh, has got worse because it was openly promoted by a presidential candidate and then a president, Donald Trump. But I think that one of the things that we really see now is because you have this hostility directed towards a group that is seen as foreign, that is not seen as American, the major way of directing that hostility is through immigration policy. And something I wish I'd gone into more detail about in this book but I didn't have room was the fact that even though during the 1930s and 1940s the US government 
you know, at least tried to protect Jews in the United States from persecution, they didn't want more Jews coming in from um, outside. So the the United States, I think, was accepting Jewish refugees in 1938. All of these rumours started to circulate about um, Jewish refugees and the government displacing Gentiles from jobs in order to give refugees this job. And then I think from about 1939 onwards, uh, the US then started taking a very hard line against Jewish refugees coming to the United States. Um, you, you then see that enacted decades later with Donald Trump's, um, you know, what was often referred to as the Muslim ban. What it technically was was a restriction of immigration from seven Muslim-majority countries in nearly all of them, the United States was the United States military was actually involved in these uh, countries. So Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, um, you know, they, these were countries where the, they, they were military theaters uh, for the United States. The refugees, the asylum seekers that were coming from these countries were fleeing violence that the United States was involved in. Um, and uh, yeah, so this this act of not letting them in um, sort of in many ways does replicate things that have happened before, that instead of just actively persecuting this group at home, you just don't let them in in the first place. Hmm. That could be an interesting second book, marrying mm. up, you know, look at uh, religion and immigration yeah. policy or politics and persecution. Um, so I'd love to get your um, by the numbers yes. stat just as we wrap up and just so anyone who's listening to know that, again, religious persecution, political order in the United States is available on Amazon or through Cambridge University Press. Um, now, yeah, I'd love to get your stat. What do you have for us today? The number is 39. Okay, 39. What's that? That's the number of times that the Jehovah's Witnesses went to the Supreme Court to assert their right to proselytise in public. 39. Supreme Court, did you say? Supreme Court. That's wow. the number of cases that reached the Supreme Court. And one of the fascinating ironies of American history is the Jehovah's Witnesses were so hostile, at least at that point, to all other religious groups. And yet by going to the Supreme Court so many times, they paved the way for an expansion of religious freedom for everyone in the United States and of freedom of speech for everyone uh, in, in the United States. And uh, so... Uh, you know, a lot of religi religious minor minorities now really have Jehovah's Witnesses to thank uh, for the fact that such a wide range of religious practices is allowed um, in the United States. But that that would not have been the intention of the Jehovah's Witnesses who were going to the Supreme Court at that time. I think Jehovah's Witnesses uh, now have changed their attitudes a, a lot towards other religious groups, but um, certainly at the time. Uh, yeah, that was that was a massive historical irony. Yeah, that's very ironic and an interesting legacy for them. Um, well, thank you. And as we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts um, that our audience might be interested in. Our USSC Live podcast series runs recordings from our major live events. And recent episodes include a breakdown of the GOP candidate presidential debate, which features David, um, and a readout from the White House National Security Council staff, Kurt Campbell, Edgar Kagan, and Mira Rapp-Hooper. You can also check out our Technology and Security podcast, TS, run by the inaugural director of Emerging Technology, Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy. You can find these on our website at ussc.edu.au or wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, David, thank you so much. My pleasure.